Acts chapter 2. The, the verses, the passage that we read uh, from Acts chapter 2 is a summary of the first ever sermon inspired, influenced, helped by the indwelling spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. There was preaching and teaching for, for centuries before uh, this day of Pentecost we read about in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the, the incarnate Son of God himself um, preached with the power of the Spirit in his ministry in the world before his death and resurrection. But, but, but Peter's sermon, Peter's speech um, that, that we've read this morning was, was, was unique. It was the first ever sermon inspired, helped by the indwelling spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Um, some of you uh, will share with me a fascination, a love of origins and beginnings. And, and it's a, an illustration or something that I often talk about in my preaching. Um, I think that's part of all of us. And we want to know how things began. We want to know how things got started. And that's why, I, I don't know if, if you here in, in Zion uh, Ripon Church, I don't know if you have an anniversary weekend or an anniversary service every year, but certainly in Pennacook Baptist Church, we have an anniversary weekend. And, and, and that's why we have birthdays. That's why we celebrate wedding anniversaries. That's why organizations will, will remember or mark their centenary. I, I, I was part of the Boys Brigade. And, and I remember 1983 was the centenary year of the, the Boys Brigade. And we had various badges and Bibles that were, were left over from that. Because I was, I was quite young, 1983. Um, but I remembered the centenary of the BBE. Uh, 1883, it was founded by some, William Smith, I think was his name. Anyway, we read up and we research how things got going back in the day. And, and to read the book of Acts, the opening chapters especially, it's a bit like that. We're, we're, we're reading about the beginnings of the Christian church, the beginnings of a new way of life. And in the opening section of Acts chapter 2, we read about the, the new presence of God the Holy Spirit with his people. The sound like the wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking in foreign languages, just as he promised. The Lord Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to his disciples. <laughs> So that, well, that's the question this morning. So that what? Why? What was the Lord Jesus thinking when he sent the Holy Spirit to his disciples at Pentecost? The day of Pentecost, the events that we read about in Acts chapter 2, they were the beginning of a new experience for the people of God. Life in the Spirit. Life with 
the Spirit. But the emphasis that Luke shares about in Acts chapter 2, what we read is that the disciples were filled with the word of God in a new way. The disciples were enabled to witness to the word of God in a new way. You remember the famous verse in uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, the Lord Jesus says to the disciples, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, ye shall be my witnesses. You will witness to me when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And in the, the, the passage that we've read this morning, that's exactly what we see happening. Look, look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Look at ver- the, 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 the Cretes and the Arabians. We do hear these Christian believers speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. The the miracle wasn't simply the fact that they were speaking in tongues that were foreign to them. The miracle was that they were speaking in tongues that were foreign to them, but they were sharing God's word with all these different nationalities. And that was the work of the Holy Spirit. Opening up stretching out the influence of God's word beyond the the Jewish people in Jerusalem. God's purposes to do a new thing in the world. And that's what we read throughout the book of Acts. The believers forever speaking to people about the word of God, about the Lord Jesus, giving reason, giving defense for their actions, explaining why certain things were happening round and about them. And that's what Peter does in his speech in Acts chapter 2. He was not speaking to the disciples in this speech in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, we read about Peter speaking to the disciples. They they, they need to choose a new apostle. And Peter stands up and says, men, women, we need to do something about the need for a new apostle. He speaks to the disciples. But in Acts chapter 2, he's not speaking to the company of disciples. He's speaking out to the world. And Peter gives a speech in the open to a public crowd gathered probably, I guess, just outside the house where the the, the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And Peter felt compelled to, to stand up and make this speech because he wanted to explain to the crowds what was Happening, The crowds had noticed the commotion. They'd, they'd heard the speaking in foreign languages. The people had heard the disciples speaking to them about the works of God. And Peter wanted to explain to the crowd so that those who were amazed could understand further. And so that those who mocked 
might begin to understand. You notice that? How, um, I can't remember the exact verse, but there were some people, yeah, verse 12, verse 12. Look at verse 12. Some were amazed, but others mocked. Verse 13. And Peter stands up and he speaks to both the amazed and the mockers. Perhaps some of the people who were amazed were, were, were genuine. This is the crowd that was with Jesus. I wonder if there's really something going on here. And the words of Peter spoke to people who were genuine. But from verse 13, we know that there were other people who were thinking the worst. It's them again. Those wasters. What are they trying to push this time? What trick are they trying to pull this time? And so the first thing that Peter does in his speech, well, he does some fact-checking, doesn't he? Peter starts with the facts. And, and he reminded the people of the prophecy of Joel in the Old Testament. And he says to the people, the commotion, the experiences, these are they that Joel talked about. And he takes the people to Joel chapter 2. All those centuries ago, and Joel speaks about what has just happened in your presence. Now that was remarkable enough in itself. But there's a sense in which Peter was simply opening up the way to say something more. The thing in itself was rather remarkable. The coming of the Spirit, the speaking in tongues, that in itself was a fact. A fact underwritten by prophetic history. But Peter wanted to explain the fact. And Peter gave the reasons for the fact of the event Peter preached about Christ. One of the books I've been using to help my studies in Acts um, tells us that Peter said four things about Jesus. Verse 22, he talks about his life in ministry. Men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders. Then verse 23, he goes straight to his death. Um, him being delivered by the counsel of God, you have taken, you have crucified. And then verses 24 all the way down to verse 31, Peter talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And then verses 33 to 36, the exaltation of Jesus. So Jesus lived and ministered. Jesus then died on the cross. Jesus was then raised back to life. But now Jesus is exalted in heaven. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right 
hand. And Peter stood up. Peter explained what the crowd had seen. And remember that this is the same Peter who was ashamed of Jesus. This is the same Peter who was embarrassed to admit to being a follower of Jesus just a few weeks previously. And here he is now, standing in the morning daylight, in the, well, maybe not in the middle of Jerusalem, but it's, it's, in, it's in the city, it's in the town. And, and, and here he is, preaching about the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, and then preaching about Jesus himself. And Peter was able to point the crowd to things that they already knew. Things that they already knew. They'd seen Jesus. They'd listened to him preach and teach. They'd witnessed and seen the results of his miracles. They'd welcomed him into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They'd cried for his execution a few days later. Some of them would have watched him die on the cross. And and Peter talks about the life and ministry of Jesus. He talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He talks about the ascension of Jesus. All those things. Essential for Christian preaching and Christian living. If you don't know about those things, or if you somehow dismiss or ignore those things, you don't have Christian preaching according to the apostolic model. We're back to origins again. The importance of where things come from, the importance of new beginnings. And if something changes from what it was in the beginning, at some point along the change, You've got to ask yourself, is this the same thing? Is this the same movement? And some of the so-called churches in Ripon this morning, I can say this without knowing any of the other so-called churches in Ripon, some of the so-called churches in Ripon this morning are not the same church as the church that started in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Because they are not preaching and teaching the same gospel message that Peter preached. They are not declaring the same gospel to the world outside of their building walls. They do not know and experience the life of the same spirit within them. If you want to be known as a Christian, do you believe the same message that the first Christians believed? Is your experience similar to their experience? Are you a Christian at all? If you don't know Jesus, if you don't believe the resurrection, don't know the influence of the Spirit in your life. Well, Peter talked about Jesus. But Peter did something else when he talked about Jesus. He he, he didn't simply list four or five things on a bullet point presentation because the second thing that Peter did when he talked about Jesus was was similar to his explanation of the events Peter linked the facts about Jesus 
to what the Old Testament scriptures taught about the Messiah Savior. Peter linked the facts about Jesus to what the Old Testament scriptures taught about the Messiah Savior. We're not going to go into detail here, but but Peter, in his speech, uses two Psalms. And, and, And especially, I think, he uses Psalm 110. And he talks about the promise of God to raise up someone to deliver his people out of slavery. And that person was to be from the line of the kings of David. Look look, look at verse 29. Verse 29. Peter continues his speech. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. He's talking about King David. We read about the story of King David in 1 Samuel. And, And Peter starts talking about King David. He's dead. He's buried. But he wrote things in the Psalms. And he wrote things about a a, a person who would rise from his his generation. Um, Therefore, being a prophet, verse 30, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this, before spake of the resurrection of Christ. Peter identified Jesus as that Messiah. Verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Jesus that you put to death is the Messiah, Lord, Savior, that David spoke about in the Psalms. Now, it's very interesting. I don't think we've got time to get into the detail here. But, but Peter was doing something very interesting. And Luke does something very interesting here. Because in his gospel, in Luke chapter 20, Luke tells a story about Jesus using Psalm 110. And Jesus used Psalm 110 in his preaching, in his teaching. And in Luke chapter 20, um, Luke tells us about the interaction and the discussions that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders. And, and, And the Jewish leaders were questioning the credentials of Jesus. And as part of those discussions, before his death, before his resurrection, before being ascended into heaven, the Lord Jesus used Psalm 110. And he says to people, look, this Messiah, this son of man, the son of David, how, how does the Lord say to my Lord that, that he shall stand that he will sit at my right hand and I think the argument that Jesus was making was this the Messiah would be no other person than God himself the Messiah would be an exalted person on a par with God 
a person with divine nature. And Jesus was saying that his authority was the authority of God himself. God in the world. God in the person of his son. God as Messiah, Savior. Jesus claimed to be divine, to be God. Here's Peter. And Peter's using the exact same psalm. But he uses it in a very slightly different way. He uses the psalm to tell people that it is the Lord Jesus who is now at work in the world in these events of the day of Pentecost. Jesus is now the exalted Lord and Saviour of his people. Jesus is now working to establish a new thing in the world. Jesus is now sending his spirit to live with, to live in his people. The life of God in the souls of men and women, boys and girls. Luke wrote Acts chapter 2. And he expected his readers to make all the connections. Jesus had already used Psalm 110. Jesus had already identified himself. And now says Peter, now says Luke, we can experience and encounter Jesus as the risen, exalted Saviour, the humble preacher, teacher, minister, the Son of God in his lowly earthly ministry. Well, he's now the exalted Son of God in heaven. And, And the disciples testified to that. Now, why does all this matter? What difference does Peter's argument make to the cause of Christ in the world? I mean, on the surface, Peter's simply explaining the things that had happened. Verse 14 again, Peter standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice, said unto them, Ye men of Judea, all ye that dwell, be this known unto you, hearken to my word, these things These men are not drunk. Here's what's happening. But from verse 22 all the way down to verse 37, two other things become apparent in Peter's message. Two things that bring home the significance of the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. First of all, all that Jesus did All that he is doing through the Holy Spirit, it's all the plan and work of God. I wonder if you noticed that in our reading. I wonder if you noticed just how prominent God is in Peter's speech. I think until verse 33, until verse 33, Jesus is passive in Peter's speech. It's God who's active in all the things that happen. It's God's plan. It's God's work. It's God overseeing. It's God overruling. Look at verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, a man approved of God. Through signs and miracles and wonders, which Jesus did? No, which God did by him. God, verse 23, 
being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up. Verse 30 again, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him. Verse 32, this Jesus hath God raised up. God at work in the life and ministry of Jesus. God at work in his death. God at work in his resurrection. God at work in his exaltation into heaven. Now, if you're boss at work, those of you that still work, and if, 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 if the boss or the owner of your work does things, if they make decisions, if they take action, if they overrule things, if you're part of that organization, if you're an employee all other things being equal, above board, and legal. If the boss does something, you've got to take note and you've got to fall in line with the boss. Well, God was at work in Jesus, even, verse 23, even in the death of Jesus. It's God's plan. It's God's working. But even though it was all the work of God, there's a second aspect to Peter's message to the crowd. Verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. You yourselves know about Jesus, his life and ministry. You knew, says Peter. You had seen and heard about his teaching. You had seen or heard about his works of power. You had heard him teach about Psalm 110. All the other encounters. You knew that Jesus was special. You knew he was unique. You knew he was different. You are responsible. You are responsible for your rejection of that knowledge. But it's worse than that, says Peter. You were responsible for crucifying and killing him. You were part of the plot. Verse 23. Ye have taken... And by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You were active in seeking to destroy and get rid of Jesus. And and you took him by wicked hands. And you crucified and you slay him. And the terrifying prospect for the people of Jerusalem was this. Verse 36. The Jesus that they had crucified. God had established his power. And God had confirmed his status and identity. Therefore, let all the house of Israel assuredly know, verse 36, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, Lord and Christ. terrifying prospect Peter starts by trying to explain some rather weird and wonderful events 
Some people were interested and amazed. Others were mockers. And Peter ends up accusing all of his listeners with this terrifying prospect that you are responsible and you are guilty for the death of the Son of God. And in verse 37, something remarkable happens. In verse 37, when the crowd heard Peter's arguments, they accepted them. They realized the danger they were in. They knew that they were responsible for all their evil acts. And they could not deny that God was also at work. Because all the events pointed to the truth of what Peter was saying. And you and I are not exempt. You and I are not removed from these things. Why? Because it's God who was at work in Jesus. The creator God that we prayed to earlier in service. The one who made you. The one who you are dependent upon. And and, and he has worked in the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. God's purposes are not confined to Jerusalem. They're not confined to the Jews. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. My people will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Go and tell people to get right with me, says Jesus. Go and tell people about me so that they can call upon me so that I might restore them and make them new um, Verse 21, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the people heard what Peter had said in his speech and they were moved, they were roused, they were upset. What did they do? What did they do? Well, verse 37, in the first instance, they asked for more. They asked for more. They've just been beaten up. They've just had this guilt piled upon them. Tell us more, Peter. And they cried out for help. They turned around, having heard what Peter said, and they said, tell us more. And Peter gave them more. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Verse 37, Peter starts to minister to them. You see, he's not really been ministering to them at this point. But from verse 37, he starts to preach to them. He actually starts to tell them, here's what can be done. Here's the way of restoration. Here's the way of renewal. God's servant leading God's people to salvation through God's word and God's spirit. Repent, turn around from your old way of thinking, be baptized in the name of this Jesus that you crucified. And Peter told the people to change their attitude, he told the people to change their thinking, and he told the people to switch their public allegiance. Attitude and allegiance. 
and from being those people who rejected Jesus, from being those people who killed Jesus, when people told the people to repent, he was telling them to embrace Jesus. He was encouraging them to receive the truth about Jesus and his authority. And that meant a public display of allegiance to Jesus. And that's what some of the people did. Peter gave his remarkable advice to the crowd how they should respond. But you notice um, verse 38 as well. That Peter also gave the people promises that were tied to the positive response. If you repent, if you are baptized, forgiveness of sins, the presence of the Holy Spirit with you. And here is the good news. Here's the good news. People active in the murder of the Son of God, people who shouted for Jesus to be murdered, people like that can receive forgiveness. People like that can know the Spirit of Christ coming to them, living with them, bringing his love, bringing his peace, bringing his joy. And that's what happened. 3,000 souls baptized. 3,000 souls who started to live life in the Spirit. 3,000 souls who started to experience the forgiveness of their sins that day. If those people could receive forgiveness in the Spirit, why not us? If people who had seen Jesus preach and teach, if people who had seen Jesus on the cross and were delighted in that, if those people could know forgiveness of sins, if those people could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, why not us? Because the Christian message is the same now as it was then. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Repent. Change your mind about Jesus. Be baptized. You'll receive the gifts. Because Jesus has promised. You know, the Christian church is far from perfect. But the church is the church of Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you are for him, if you've received forgiveness from him, then you belong to the church. And the church lives because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the only body, it's the only fellowship that will last forever. And God's purpose that day was to start something that would end in a new world, a new creation, full of the Spirit, full of righteousness, full of holiness. And God is still working to that end. And the Spirit still calls people. And the Spirit still invites people to the Lord Jesus. And perhaps he's calling one or two of us this morning.
Perhaps he's calling you. Perhaps he's calling family and friends, people who need the gift of forgiveness, people who need the gift of the Holy Spirit. Save yourselves, is the message. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Repent, be baptized. The forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit will be yours. May God himself work among us.